Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 12. We're going to finish up John 12 as we go verse by verse through this great gospel account. And so feel free to open up to the gospel of John. If you have no idea where John is, that's okay. Feel free to use the table of contents. There is a pew Bible there in front of you if you'd like to open up. You'll be in the New Testament, so kind of the back half of the Bible. You'll see the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John will be in chapter 12. So that's the big number 12 at the top. And then look for the little number, verse 44, this morning. We'll actually start in verse 42. We'll read two verses we covered last week. So look for the little number 42, and that's where we'll start. You'll see the title of our sermon this morning is, I have come into the world as light. So we've seen this motif of several times through John's gospel, Jesus being, being referred to as the light. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. And so I hope that you have enjoyed our study through the Gospel of John thus far. I know I have, a very rich, kind of theologically dense gospel account. And just a reminder again of how the Bible works. The Old Testament says, someone's coming, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say, someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says, that someone's coming again. And so who is that someone? The promised Messiah, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we're in the Gospel of John, we're just saying someone's here right now. And we're looking at the life and ministry of Jesus. And so while you're opening up to John 12, let me tell you a story. In classic Latham fashion, right? Always open with a story. In January of 1947, so kind of take yourself back there. January of 1947, a young man was lying down in the back seat of his car while his mother drove from Fort Deposit, Alabama to Montgomery in the middle of the night. So not too far from here. And as the mother drove through the rural darkness, remember this is the 40s, not a lot going on there, and so it's really dark, she spotted the lights of Danley Field Airport on the outskirts of Montgomery, and she basically kind of did the whole, like, I'm going to shake you awake while I'm driving the car, kind of hand in the back. She roused her sleeping, inebriated son. And she woke him up to tell him that they were almost home. And she said, I know I'm almost home because I just saw the lights of the airport. A few days later, on January 26th of that same year, 1947, a guy named Hank Williams Sr. would pen the first draft of his now iconic country gospel song, I Saw the Light. Maybe you've heard of it. Biographer Colin Escott, who wrote the biography, Hank Williams' the biography, joked That if all the people who later claimed to be in the car with him that night had actually been there, Hank would have needed a 20-passenger bus. There were a lot of people like, oh yeah, I was there. This song has just become so iconic in our culture and in the world, especially of country music. It was recorded on April the 21st. Remember, it was written in January, but it was later recorded April the 21st of 1947 as the B-side to his first MGM recording. His song on the A side was called Move It On Over. Maybe you've heard that song, Move It On Over. The back side of that little record was I Saw the Light. And it would, later be called, it would later be called A Prayer of a Backslider Who Lives in Hope of Redemption. It was named one of CMT's 20 Greatest Songs of the Faith. In 2005, it was named that, and you can probably think of how many times it's been covered by countless artists since it was first written in the 40s. People like Roy Acuff, or Bill Monroe, or the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, or Bob Dylan. Basically, everybody's covered this song, and it has such, it's such an enduring song. If you did the math, that song is 74 years old, if you're counting. 
And it has such staying power because of the honesty of the song. It's just one of those, you know, like people have described country music as three chords in the truth. It's true. It's the reason why this song, this song has had such staying power. It's, it's just brutally honest. In our day and age, people talk about seeing the light. And we're really familiar with that song. But you ever actually wondered what it means to see the light? Hank Williams Sr. says, I saw the light, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. What in the world does that mean? In our day and age, the phrase see the light is mostly used to describe being exposed to kind of like a whole new perspective on a particular situation or finally agreeing to something where you have people that they might be in conflict and, and they finally come to kind of a, an agreement and they say, I'm, I'm glad you finally saw the light on that. But it means more than that. It, it means much more than that. But for those who trust in Christ can identify with lyrics like this. Just like a blind man, I wandered alone. Worries and fears I claim for my own. Then like the blind man that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. For those of us who trust Christ by faith, you know what that's like. I once wandered around in darkness and sin, but praise the Lord, I saw the light. He met me in the midst of this. And as we turn our attention to the closing verses of chapter 12, we're about to read the, the close of the second of five major sections in John's Gospel. The first section that we looked at months and months and months ago is the prologue, which is verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That long prologue, so rich and dense. But we're about to close the second section that basically runs from chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through the end of chapter 12. And this is the public ministry of Jesus. Next week, we're going to start a new major section in John's Gospel. Again, as we're just going through this verse by verse, doing what we would call expositing this passage, expositing this book. We're drawing from, we're exegeting the text, we're drawing meaning from it. We're going to start next week the third section, which is the Passion Week, which starts chapters 13 through 19. And so the closing verses of this chapter function almost like a summary of Jesus' last words to the Jews and the gathered crowd that we've been interacting with constantly throughout the, the past few chapters. But as Ketty wrote in his commentary, he said, speaking of this passage, it is at once a self-revelation of Jesus as the Messiah and a powerful plea for people to come to him in saving faith. In short, this passage that we're about to read is a missionary call for sinners to come to the light from the lips of Jesus himself. And see if you can pick up on Jesus' urgency and his quintupling down on being the Son of God. Remember we said he said it once, and he doubles down, then he triples down, then he quadruples down, he's quintupled down. I'm sure we're past that. I could only think up to quintupling. It's a lot. He's basically saying, I'm the Son of God. He never backs down from that. See if you can pick up on his urgency, and see if you can pick up again on his claim to be the divine Son of God. And then let's figure out what's it mean to come to the light. Okay, with that in our minds, let's go to the scripture. John chapter 12, we'll start in verse 42, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. 
And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we look to your word with great expectancy because we know and remember that we need a voice from outside of ourselves to make sense of our world. So come, Holy Spirit, please take these words that we trust are living and active. Apply them to our hearts. Convict us, O Lord. Remind us of your glory. Father, change us, even in just some small way, as we have sat at your feet just for a few moments. We ask and pray that you would meet us here, and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so the big question that we're going to ask this morning is, what does it really mean to quote-unquote see the light? What's that mean? Hank Williams Sr. wrote it, I saw the light. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. What's that mean? We're going to look at two points this morning if you're a note-taking type of person. Number one, we need to recognize the true identity of the light. Say, we saw the light. Okay, so what is that? Who is that? We need to recognize the true identity of the light. Our second point, we need to recognize the true message of the light. Okay, so we need to understand and recognize the true identity, but also the true message. Let's look at that first point. We need to recognize the true identity of the light. Don't worry if you didn't write down the second point, I'll remind you in a minute. Okay, we need to recognize the true identity of the light. We began our study through John months and months ago at the beginning of the year with the opening verses of John's prologue, which is this really theologically rich, dense explanation of Jesus' divinity. There's so much packed into those 18 verses. We took a couple of weeks just to kind of go through just that. And in that prologue, Jesus is referred to as the Word. The Greek word is logos, L-O-G-O-S. And this Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. We're talking about the incarnation of Christ. But Jesus is also referred to as something else in the opening verses of the prologue. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of man. Here we see Jesus being linked with the word light. So he's not just the word incarnate, he's also the light, and that light brings life. Think back over our weekly time in John for the past few months. How many times has Jesus' claim to be the divine Son of God come under attack or scrutiny? A lot. That's the answer. Tons. It's been a constant attack by everyone. Jesus continues to claim, I'm the Son of God. I am the one whom the Father has sent. And constantly that's being attacked and criticized. And verses 42 and 43, which we talked about a little bit last week, show the mixed reactions to Jesus' claim to be the divine Son of God. Look again at verse 42. 
says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see this mixed reaction. Some believe, some don't. Some actually double down on their hatred against Christ. And all of this was part of the sovereign plan of God. We have seen the sovereignty of God expressed over and over and over again through the Gospel of John. We're reminded there's this arc of redemption that is happening in the Gospel. And also this arc of redemption that's happening in your Bible. And we're just kind of wading into that stream. Look at verse 44. With the cross looming, Jesus speaks with great urgency. At the end of verse 36, John told us that Jesus hid himself. And now he reemerges. And what does he do? We're told that he cried out. The Greek word here is kradzo, K-R-A-D-Z-O, if you're taking notes. Kratzo. And that word is compared to the cry of a raven. To cry out loudly. This same word is used to describe John the Baptizer's proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. Where he says, behold the Lamb of God. He kratzo, he cries out with a loud voice. This Jesus' proclamation to be the living water. You remember that feast of the water where they lift the pitcher up and everything, a hush falls over the crowd. And then Jesus cries out with a loud voice. That's me! That's that same word that we see here. This word is also later used in Acts chapter 7 to describe Stephen's calling out to the Lord as he was stoned. It's this loud cry. It's not a murmur. This is Jesus crying out with a loud voice. And so with a great shout, Jesus cries out and he once again publicly links himself with his Father. Unlike those who hid from the Pharisees in verse 42, Jesus continues to speak boldly. He knows what the price is going to be, but yet he continues to do it. In verse 44, we see him doing a couple of things. To believe in Christ is to believe in the Father. Verse 45, to see Christ is to see the Father. Verse 50, to hear Christ is to hear the Father. He's basically saying, I and the Father are one. We'll see him again reiterate that, especially as we move forward in the gospel account. And so we think this morning, okay, well, why should we care? We, as a church, need to continue to proclaim what Jesus himself proclaimed. Come what may from the culture at large, we must continue to proclaim that Jesus has been, now is, and will forever be the divine Son of God. We can't flinch on that because he's our only hope. We cannot, come what may, come the cultural pressure that may come. We cannot flinch on this. Jesus has been, is now, and will forever be the Son of God, eternal. A member of the triune Godhead. To see the light is to recognize Jesus for who He truly is. Fully God, fully man, and an eternal member of the triune Godhead. Co-equal, co-eternal. Can't flinch on that. John chapter 1, verse 14, in that prologue, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. Jesus proclaims it. Again, to see the light is to recognize Jesus for who He truly is. 
You think about this, there's this massive cultural conversation going on right now about fully accepting someone's self-identification with no questions asked, their pronouns, their gender, even the species. Oh, I, I'm, I'm actually not a human, I'm actually a dog, or I'm a horse. Yeah, that's a thing. You think about this cultural conversation that's going on about accepting someone's self-identification with no questions asked until it comes to Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the Son of God. And we say, no, you're not. Prove it. Think about what's going on here with what Jesus is doing. And you think many are so quick to reject Jesus' self-identification as the Son of God with no questions asked. We think, is this the first time that he's claimed to be that? No. It's been constant. And Jesus continues to do that, but we're so quick to reject Jesus' self-identification. Why? Why is this the case? Because Romans 1, we talked about that this morning in Sunday school. We suppress the truth about God in our unrighteousness. We actively hold it down. We know that God exists, but yet you can talk to people around you who they'll say, oh, I don't claim, you know, I will never accept Jesus as God. Or I will never accept that God exists. They are actively suppressing the truth about God in their unrighteousness and holding it down. And we, as the church, need to continue to remember and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. Other people might want to keep Jesus at arm's length by claiming, okay, well, he's a good moral teacher, I'll give you that, while never confessing that he actually is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So say, I'll, okay, I'll give you the fact that Jesus was a moral guy who did some cool stuff, but I'll never accept the fact that he was the divine Son of God. It's kind of more of like a polite like hat tip of respect instead of bowing the knee to a king. Again, here's what Ketty said. He said, believing in Jesus and seeing Jesus, he says is not believing in and seeing him only as if he were a great leader and the founder of a new movement, but believing in and seeing him who sent me. Believing in the Father as well. Look at verse 49. Jesus speaks with the full power and authority of his Father and came into the world to fulfill the will of his Father. There's one united will of the Trinity from all eternity past to rescue God's people by offering up of himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. This eternal covenant that God made, that I'm going to do whatever it takes to rescue and redeem God's covenant chosen people. I will get them. I will rescue them. Our memory verse, and no one will snatch them from my hand. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which, men, by which we must be saved. And so the question this morning, we're thinking about how Jesus is identifying as, I am the divine Son of God. The Father and I are one. To see me is to see Him. The question this morning is, do you really, truly, and fully believe what Jesus says about himself? Or are you just kind of giving him a little hat tip? Do you fully, really believe that Jesus is, has always been, is, and will forever be, the unique, divine Son of God? And he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. If you see him as anything other than that, 
the divine Son of God sent by the Father and as the only name under heaven by which we can be saved, you have not seen the light. Because you are not proclaiming what Jesus says about Himself. You are taking the second member of the Trinity and you are crafting Him in your own image. We must accept Jesus on His own terms. And if you are not able to proclaim that, you've not seen the light. To reject Jesus' identity and His message is to reject the Father. Look at verse 48. What's He say in verse 48? The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. What a crushing indictment. This is the danger of unbelief. This is the warning that Jesus the warning that Jesus gives it comes into play as we think about him crying out over the crowd. Here's what Matthew Henry said, super helpful. He said where the banner of the gospel is displayed, no neutrality is admitted. Every man, every person is either a subject to the king or an enemy of the king whenever the gospel is portrayed. Neutrality is a myth. It can appear that Jesus is denying God's judgment in the first half of verse 48. Here's what Ian Duguid said. He said, Jesus had stated the purpose of his incarnation in chapter 3, verse 17. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he reasserts that reality in chapter 12, verse 47. This is continued part of the quote. It was his purpose to come not as judge, but as savior. Those who hear his words but do not keep them, verse 47, will have his word as their judge on the last day, verse 48. Jesus has asserted that he will execute judgment at the resurrection, chapter 5, verses 27-29, and those who reject him will have his word judge them at the resurrection on the last day, verse 48, end quote. Long quote by Duguid. Remember, we are in the period of what is known. We think about the gospel accounts. We're in the, in the period of Jesus' ministry, which is theologically known as the humiliation of Christ. Westminster Shorter Catechism 27 asks the question, what about what's Christ's humiliation? It says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. This is what he's speaking of in the first half of verse 48. But Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father and is promised to come again, not as a suffering servant, but as a conquering, exalted king. This is known as Christ's exaltation. The very next question in the Catechism, question number 28, asks, what's the deal with Christ's exaltation? Here's how it answers. Christ's exaltation consists in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. This is what he's talking about in the second half of verse 48, that he will come again in glory. And so while we live in this period of time between the ascension of Christ and his second coming, Christ has ascended into heaven, he's promised to return, we live in this time. When he comes again, again in glory, I have no idea. But God the Father knows. As we live in this time between the ascension of Christ and his promised second coming, I urge you to consider your relationship to Christ today. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? 
Hear the words of Isaiah the prophet whom Jesus referenced in the verses from last week's passage. Isaiah 55, 6-7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus, King Jesus has promised to return. We do not know the day or the hour, but God does. And we would be very wise to listen to and heed the words of Christ. Who do you say that Jesus is? Do you believe, confess, and hold fast to the fact that He is the divine Son of God? He is that true light that has come into the world. Do you claim Him and rest upon Him and Him and Him alone for salvation? Do you confess His true identity as that light? We all need to take stock of that and think about that this morning because we need to recognize not only the true identity of the light but also the true message of that light. That's our second point. We recognize the true message of the light. So we have to to see the light. We understand that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is that light that is the life of man in John's prologue. But now, okay, so if we acknowledge that, what's he say? What's his message? That's what we have to recognize as well. Don't miss the grace of the Father in sending His Son into the world. The very fact that we are sitting here today just shows how patient and long-suffering the Father is. You thought about that? Just how patient and long-suffering He is. Think all the way back. He had every right all the way back in Genesis 3 to wipe, wipe us off the face of the earth, right? Adam and Eve creates them says, obey me in this area. They don't. Your Bible could have been a page and a half in the Bible and we would have never existed and God could have moved on and been completely just in what he did. The very fact that we're sitting here shows us and reminds us just how patient God is. Just how long-suffering he is. God is still... You think, why in the world did he not wipe everything off the face of the earth? Why did he not just crumple it all up like a piece of paper? Why? Because God's still at work. He's still gathering His elect sheep by piercing the darkness of their sin, shining the light of the gospel into their hearts, and calling their names by sheer grace. He's still at work. And we rest in that fact. John 6, 37-40, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. That I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Look at verse 46. What's He say in verse 46? He says, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. The Father also sent His Son as the divine agent to speak words of eternal life into a dark and sinful world that was in utter rebellion against its Creator. In the midst of that rebellion, in the midst of us shaking our fist at the Lord, this light pierces the darkness by grace, by grace, into the cave of your sin. The Spirit has moved. And there's a light that's dawned. And it's all by grace. You didn't want it. You didn't deserve it. But yet He gave it. That's the beauty of the gospel. You think about it. 
Again, here's what Matthew Henry said. He said, Christ was intimately acquainted with the counsels of God and was faithful in discovering so much of them to the children of men as it was agreed that should be discovered and kept back nothing that was profitable. As the faithful witness delivers souls, so did he and spoke the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so you think, what does it mean to really see the light? We believe in Jesus' true identity and we believe his true word. And without this, we're in darkness. But thanks be to God that he has spoken into it, that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, when we were enemies of God and lost without hope, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to rescue and redeem his people from spiritual darkness by giving us the sheer gifts of grace, which are regeneration, faith, and repentance. All of them were a gift. By a loving God, by his grace, piercing the darkness of our souls. Isaiah 9 2. We love to, to mention this around Christmas time, but it matters every day. <laughs> Isaiah 9 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Think about the grace of the Lord piercing into that darkness. How would this redemption be accomplished? How in the world does all of this happen? By the blood of the Lamb. Isaiah 53. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Romans 5, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You think about what's going on here. How does this whole like salvation redemption-y thing happen? It happens through the blood of Christ who willingly gave himself for us as the true and spotless lamb. And we didn't deserve a bit of it. And yet in his grace, he's given us himself. And so you think about Jesus crying out with a loud voice, I and the Father are one. I have come to do my Father's will. What is that will? To rescue you from your sin. Praise be to Christ forever. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's it. It's that simple. What is the will of the Father? Not that we should perish. Not that we should be wiped away, but that we would have a Savior. And we can look to Him and we would be covered with the blood of the Lamb. That's the gospel. That's it. It's that simple, but yet so profound. You spend your whole life trying to roll that around in your head. You'll never plumb the depths of it. It's that good. It's that true. It's that real. Are you with me? It's, I mean, think about that. It's amazing how all of this was handled through the blood of Christ. And so you think about, think about what's going on here. The cross is approaching. Next week, we begin the Passion Week and things ramp up. And so with the cross looming, a small group gathered together in an upper room to celebrate the final Passover meal before Jesus' crucifixion. All of this had to be done. They ate the unleavened bread. They ate the bitter herbs. They, were, they remembered God's strong arm of deliverance for His covenant people. They remembered how by faith the people of God applied the blood of the Lamb to the doorway and they were spared judgment as God passed over them. And you think about this morning, 1 Corinthians 5-7 reminds us, For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. It's done. It's finished. We remember and we proclaim. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Hear this good news. 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Not by your effort. Not by how all the holiness that you dwelt up in and of yourself. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ by grace. So this is a table of grace. This isn't a table where you have to come and like somehow show me or the elders your righteous record for the week and be found worthy to take it. This is a table of grace spread before you. That's what makes this supper so amazing when you think about it. As we take this meal together, let us remember and proclaim, Jesus, our divine and risen King, has spoken a word of grace to His people, that His word is sure, His promises are true. Let us thank God for piercing the darkness of our sinful hearts and for shining the light of the gospel of grace down upon us. Let us, as we take this meal, let us remember and proclaim, Christ has died. Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And we hold fast to that word and that promise until the very end. And we remember and proclaim Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's our only hope. He's the only mediator between God and man. And He did what no other king in human history ever has done, willingly laid down His life for His enemies, so that His enemies could be made friends. That is the message of this table. That's the message of the gospel. Who among us here actually deserved what this table represents? None of us. You know what we did represent? You know what we did deserve? The wrath and judgment of God that Christ himself took. That's what we really deserved. We didn't deserve this. This is a table of grace. And so as we take it together, we remember all that Christ has done. And so as we look to this table this morning, we look with great hope because the Lord knows that we're forgetful people. I am. You probably are too. And the Lord knows that we need to re be reminded of Christ's return. We need to be reminded of His grace and mercy. And so God, in His wonderful love and grace, has given us this physical reminder of the gospel. This is a good gift given to us by a loving God. Where all of our senses are engaged, we get to see and taste and touch and handle the gospel and be reminded yet again. The good news is this is not a table for perfect people. If you've got your life all put together and you're a perfect person, I would love to read your book. My guess is, though, you're just like me, a wretched sinner in need of God's grace. And so this table is set before you. That's good news. This is a table that's not, it's not a table for perfect people. This is for those who see their sin and their need for grace. This is for Christians. Christians who look to Jesus by faith. Look to Him and Him alone. Trust Christ by faith alone. But it's also not just the PCA's table. And so if you're here and you're not a member of a PCA church, that's fine. We're so glad you're here. If you're here this morning and you go to a, a, you're a member of a different church, but that church is, preaches the true gospel of grace, that you're a sinner and that Jesus is the only way and you claim Jesus by faith, then please come and eat with us as brothers and sisters in the faith. Please come. But if you're not a Christian, feel no pressure to participate. We would actually ask you to let the elements pass. Because Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves and to be discerning of Christ's sacrifice and of His body and His blood. If you're here and you do not trust Christ by faith, we ask, we really would ask that you would let the elements pass because Paul warns us that we'd eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But we hope that you won't stay away for long. Come and talk to us about how you, can, how you can know Jesus as your Savior 
It would be our greatest and highest privilege to sit down and to tell you about Christ and all that He's done. And we'll start with what He's done in our own hearts first. Christ calls us to come and to feed on Him and to find grace through Him. And this bread and this cup, they're signs and seals of the covenant of grace. At this point, I'll ask the elders and those who are helping to please come forward. This morning at Grace Prez, we pass the elements separately while remaining seated, and we take them together one at a time. We'll, we'll send out the bread first, and then we will send out the juice, and we'll take them together. There's also some prepackaged elements in the trays, if you would prefer to use one of those, or if you're gluten-free, there is an option available for that. If we run out of those, just slip your hand up, we'll go get you one. Happy to do it. Hear the words of institution this morning as we look, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it and he blessed it and he said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, Jesus, as our great Passover lamb, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And that's what we're doing. For those who trust in Christ this morning, I've got some good news for you. This table of grace is set before you and... As we minister in Christ's name, we invite you to come and taste and see and to take the gospel and to be reminded. Take the supper of grace. This table set for you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge, Lord, that you are the one true and living God. And we also acknowledge that you are a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. Your promises are true and sure and will forever be. And we pray that by your mercy, you would grant us access to your throne of grace. We pray that you would take these humble elements, this bread and this cup, set them apart for a holy use, show us your grace and seal it within our hearts. We ask and pray that you would receive all glory from this, O Lord. We ask these things humbly in Christ's precious name. Amen.